Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for our final topic in the Best Practices series, Deal Structuring and Terms. Today we will be discussing the first part of two in this final category called The Art of the Deal. This addresses the strategic items and decisions that should be considered when making an investment. In the next installment of Deal Structuring and Terms, we will address the mechanics of the deal, which covers the more tactical items and specific terms that should be included in any deal. Again, these are high-level best practices with a focus on early-stage seed rounds. There are many categories of terms and nuances of deal structure, but today is about understanding the key strategic levers to pull when negotiating a deal. If you'd like some more specific info on terms, a good place to start is episode 10 with Brad Feld. Okay, for today's topic, we'll delve into seven items. They include zero sum, equity percentage, market price and valuation, deal types, rounds before, after, and in between, the scorecard, and the close. The first item was zero sum. So this is not a zero-sum game. It's far from it. Those investors that think the startup has to lose for them to win will not last long in this business. There are predatory investors out there that will take advantage of startups. There are also many startups that will sell stock at terrible terms to friends and family or early angels. The responsibility is on all of us to educate ourselves. If one works with startups to create successful financial outcomes for all, the opportunities for the investor in the present situation and subsequent opportunities will be much better. As David S. Rose has stated in his Angel Investing book, what is being negotiated isn't a one-time deal from which both parties walk away without further interaction, but rather a long-term partnership whose goal is to produce value for both parties. The second category here is called equity amount. An entrepreneur will typically give up between 15 and 30% equity. Rounds that transfer ownership of more than 30% of a company are often considered to be adding unnecessary risks and expectations. Recall that Joanne Wilson advised that a startup shouldn't sell more than 20% of their company in any round. Downstream problems can occur if the startup doesn't know a great deal about fundraising and gives away 50% or more of the company to investors. This can cause a successful startup to be led by a demotivated founder because they've been diluted down to minimal ownership. As Leo Polovitz has suggested, 
A startup should not give away too little equity, i.e. less than 15%, or they are probably not raising enough capital to meet or exceed the milestones required for the next round of financing. All said, it looks like the ideal range often falls between 15 and 25% equity for any fundraise round. A final note here, Albert Wenger of USV has written about the issue of raising too much capital, i.e. the post-money trap. Remember that the true valuation of a startup is the pre-money valuation plus the amount raised. If too much is raised and the post-money valuation is pushed too high, it can be a very risky situation for the startup and the investors. Albert has provided the anecdote, It reminds me a lot of the problem of getting rockets into space. The simplistic answer would seem to be, just add more fuel. The problem, though, is that fuel, too, weighs something which now needs to be lifted into space. Your burn rate is pretty much the same thing. Unless you are super disciplined on how you spend the money, you will have a higher burn rate the more you raise, which makes subsequent funding harder instead of easier. The third major item to cover here is market price and valuation. Many investors will say they need 10x in five, meaning they are targeting an ROI of 10x cash return in five years or less. No one's going to get that with every investment, but it often is the goal and frames the valuation discussion. Recall the episode on valuation with Jeffrey Carter, where we reviewed links to studies on average valuation by stage. Other resources that can help estimate valuation with current data includes AngelList. There's a pretty neat tool there at angel.co front slash valuations, where you can search on time frame, geography, market, previous company, university of the founder, etc. Unfortunately, I've never been able to get it to show results when I click multiple filters, but it's still very useful. Other excellent sources of valuation data includes Crunchbase, CB Insights, Mattermark, PitchBook, DataFox, and the Angel Resource Institute's Halo Report. While the standard seed valuations have historically hovered between 2 and 3 million, recall Dave Berkus's comments that we are currently in a tech bubble and valuations are inflating, especially on the coast. In Chicago, I am starting to see many more valuations at an order of magnitude above historical levels. Other things to remember are that traction, sector activity, pedigree of the entrepreneur, quality of the team, etc. are also going to increase valuation. There is a reason for averages and also for outliers. We've discussed before the difference between pre-money valuation and post-money. To provide some quick examples and for simplicity, let's use some easy numbers. If you invest half a million dollars at a $1 million pre-money valuation, then the post-money is $0.5 million plus $1 million, which equals $1.5 million. So for your $0.5 million, you will get one-third of the company. If you invest half a million at a $1 million post-money valuation, then you will get half the company. While startups sometimes talk about valuation in terms of pre-money, it's best practice to think of valuation in terms of post-money. If a startup only tells you the pre-money, make sure you know how much in total they plan to raise, and you may even consider capping the raise to ensure that the appropriate amounts are being transacted. And while the convertible note or safe is a way to punt on valuation, the agreed-upon cap is a proxy for valuation. Both Dave Burkus and Bill Payne do not invest in uncapped convertible notes. To date, I have not either because the likelihood of a startup going out of business 
is much higher than the 20% discount you're going to get on the note. To compensate for that risk, a ceiling should be capped on the equity that the seed investor receives at Series A. Historically, median seed valuations have been a little less than half of median Series A valuations. So either cap your notes or ask for a 50 to 60% discount, which I'm sure will elicit some strange looks. A final note here, ultimately, if the valuation is too high, it's okay to pass. For that matter, if any of the terms are way outside of one's comfort zone, there are always other options out there. There are no sure things at the seed round, and dumb money does damage to investors and entrepreneurs alike. The fourth category is called deal types. Recall that there are three main investment instruments used for startup investments. Number one is the price round and the term sheet. This is a transfer of cash for equity. Number two is convertibles. This is a transfer of dollars for an agreement that is intended to become equity at some time in the future. It includes both convertible notes, which is a debt structure, as well as safes, which is a non-debt structure. And a reminder for those using convertibles and safes, if you're getting a pro rata right, I would suggest writing up a side note. Even if the pro rata is cited in the main doc, remember that a convertible is a debt instrument, while a pro rata is a right to maintain an equity percentage. One does not have equity upon executing a convertible, hence a side doc is a smart way to support your pro rata long after your note doc converts and is no longer valid. The last common instrument to touch on is the warrant. This is typically a supplement to the term sheet or convertible and is rarely the only transaction used to make a startup investment, although it may be in rare cases. This is a way for the entrepreneur to acquire more funding through the sale of options that can be converted to equity at a predefined valuation. Recall Jason Heltzer's comments about the vanity terms of around. There will be instances where entrepreneurs are unyielding on the valuation. In these instances, other items can help compensate for an inflated price, such as warrants. We will not do a full recap on all of the other financing sources available as we cover the main ones here. If you'd like to learn more about the other sources, please reference episode 18 with Dave Burkus. Okay, category number five is called rounds, before, after, and in between. I wanted to take a moment to discuss rolling, contingent, and stacked closes. Some rounds, particularly before a high-profile demo day, are going to fill very quickly, and the last thing on your mind will be escrow or an extended rolling close. But these are often the minority at the seed or pre-seed stage. The vast majority of rounds do not close in less than a month. And if a fundraise does not include escrow, what's the benefit for an investor to be the first check in? If there is early capital risk on top of business risk, think about how incentives should be set up to encourage early capital or just plan to escrow. Category number six is called the scorecard. Is there a silver bullet for evaluating startups? No. But can each investor codify their own process? Absolutely. If you're like me, there's way too many good ideas coming your way to keep everything in perspective. Personally, I have a list of 10 items in my pre-filter that helps me make decisions on 90% of my deal flow very quickly. I have another longer list of items in my deeper evaluation set that helps me focus in on startups that are very strong and warrant more significant time commitment. Does a startup need to fulfill every item in my evaluation criteria? No. 
and it'll be next to impossible to find a startup that is perfect on everything. But those that pass 8 out of 10 are clearly better for me than those that pass 3 out of 10. Now, we don't all need a long, involved, meticulous process. These items could be as simple as the idea is disrupting a huge market. The founding team has a wow factor that gets you excited. The makeup of the team includes a builder and seller, for instance. One founder has domain expertise in the target market. The founding team is co-located. There is some demonstrated traction within the target market. These items don't have to be high science. They just need to be consistent with your philosophy on what elements allow for exceptional outcomes and reduce likelihood of startup failure. The next and final category is called the close. As Alec Baldwin so eloquently put it in the film Glengarry Glen Ross, coffee is for closers. While its theme is much more cynical, the message rings true. You have to work toward a close. If one treats this like a hobby and does not have a professional lead, it's probably going to be a big waste of the investor's and the entrepreneur's time. If we understand what's important to us and listen to what's important for the entrepreneur, the negotiation can be much quicker and easier than one would expect. When I consider the deals that have gone well, here are the critical elements. Number one is speed. Many of the good deals move fast. Recall that Leo Pulovets advised startups to plan for a two-month raise. If they cannot raise in that time, then either the business or the economics need altering. And investors should be able to gather the necessary information to make a decision and move on it before others do. Number two is disposition. It goes without saying that a collaborative, win-win approach will trump an adversarial one any day. Jason Heltzer cited the common pitfalls of negotiation, including those that talk more than they listen, those that are position-oriented instead of principle-oriented, and those that push from a position of power instead of articulating the value. The third element here is called decision-makers. I have made this mistake more than once now. Negotiating with one founder who does not have the ultimate decision authority, and it's caused protracted relay negotiations where terms continue to fluctuate long after they're agreed upon. In short, if all decision makers are not present, everyone is wasting their time. The fourth element is called homework and docs. As much as possible, do your best to have the term sheet and or purchase agreements ready to go. You may have to adjust items within the docs, like valuation amount, liquidation preference, etc. But if you have an understanding of the docs and have them ready to go, these changes can be made on the fly. I have had numerous negotiations where agreements were made only to be revisited and reworked for many weeks where nothing material was changed. And in addition to having my docs ready, I have even brought a check to the negotiation. Something as little as a $50,000 check can really motivate the parties to get the terms right and move forward. If a deal can be made, get it done. And the fifth element of the close is in person. Related to the last item, it's critical to be in person with the entrepreneur to understand their position and discuss the major negotiation terms. It's another area that will delay and kill deals. Agreements over the phone or over email are less efficient, less clear, and ultimately not binding. Finally, to round out this point on closing, if decision-making is difficult for you, 
it may be best to partner or co-invest with those that have a process and can move forward more decisively. One will never have perfect or exhaustive information. Learn what you need, close the deal, and enjoy your coffee. That'll wrap up this installment of Best Practices. I'll be finishing up the last section and releasing it soon so that the full series on Best Practices is complete. Of course, this is being done at a snapshot in time, and I would like to think that these best practices will evolve and improve over time. I wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you for listening and for all the great comments lately, namely on Twitter. I've seen a number of audience members tweet about the show, their favorite episodes, quotes from guests, and even some who are capturing their own key takeaways from the episodes in a tweet. Special thanks to Ryan Hatch, who sent out a number of thoughtful, well-framed comments on a few of the episodes. And to all of you who aren't big Twitter users, it's always great to read a new review on iTunes. It's a big help to me, and if you've taken the time to listen to a full episode, I suspect you appreciate how much time it takes me to create it. And it would be great if you'd do me the favor of writing a review on iTunes. Okay, that's it for this episode. Remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. (music) 